when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The scandal over Greensill Capital, the collapsed finance company, has engulfed some of Westminster's most senior figures and raised pertinent questions about lobbying. I do think it is a good idea in principle that top civil servants should be able to engage with, uh, with business and should have experience of the private sector. Uh, when I look at uh, the accounts I'm reading today, it's not clear that those boundaries uh, have been properly understood. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be exploring how the tentacles of Greensill went deep into Whitehall, the role of former Prime Minister David Cameron in this scandal, and whether lobbying in the UK needs reform. Boris Johnson, as we heard at the top, seems to think so. Explaining this tale is Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and special guest Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute for Government Think Tank. And later, we'll be reflecting on the passing of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, and whether the monarchy is about to enter a new age and how that may change its interactions with government and deference with the public. Chief Political Commentator Robert Simsley will discuss with the eminent historian and journalist Sir Max Hastings. Thank you all for joining. So, with some big complex stories to discuss, let's crack into the main topic of the week. The collapse of Greensill Capital, led by Australian banker Lex Greensill, is a big financial scandal, but a political one too. This is mostly thanks to the involvement of former Prime Minister David Cameron, who worked as a senior advisor to the firm and found time to text cabinet ministers and arrange private drinks. But the revelations that senior civil servants worked for Greensill while remaining in Whitehall has raised even more alarm bells, prompting calls for major reform to the UK's lax regulatory regime for lobbying. At Prime Minister's questions this week, opposition leader Keir Starmer accused Boris Johnson of not taking it seriously. Mr Speaker, he talks of the Lobbying Act. Who was it who introduced that legislation? David Cameron. Who was it who voted for the legislation? Half the Conservative front bench. We said it wouldn't be tough enough. And where did that legislation lead? Two years later, David Cameron camping out in a Saudi desert with Lex Greensill having a cup of tea. I rest my case in relation to that legislation. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back to the podcast. Let's start with the basics for those who haven't been following the Greensill scandal. What happened to the firm and why does it matter? I suppose this is one of those stories which begins as a gentle snowball coming down the hill and then after a few weeks becomes an enormous avalanche. And I think the obvious starting point would be to go back to the beginning of March when Greensill collapsed. And as part of the FT's coverage, we looked at how this company had employed David Cameron as an advisor. We revealed that Lex Greensill in the early 2010s had had a desk in the heart of Downing Street advising on supply chain finance and being a crown commissioner and how that was all a bit peculiar. 
and how he had very close links with Jeremy Hayward, the former head of the civil service, who appears to have given him that role. The two had worked together at Morgan Stanley. And then a few weeks later, we revealed in a front page story that David Cameron, at the start of the COVID pandemic early last year, had directly lobbied senior figures both in the Treasury and in Downing Street, trying to get officials to change the terms of various COVID debt schemes, such as CL bills and the CCFF Bank of England scheme. And although these lobbying efforts were not fully successful, they had enabled Greensill to have no fewer than 10 meetings with the most senior officials in the Treasury. And since then, the story has gone off in various directions. The Sunday Times has revealed much more of the detail of these lobbying efforts. And what makes this an even more complicated story, I suppose, is the fact that Greensill is intrinsically tied up with Liberty, a very large steel producer. And the collapse of Greensill means that Liberty is now close to collapse. Thousands of blue-collar steel workers' jobs on the line. So it's a story with very many complicated angles. Well, Hannah White, it's great to have you with us. The crucial thing in terms of Westminster here is David Cameron's role, that he, as we know, left Downing Street in 2016 following the Brexit referendum. And there's this two-year period where former ministers and officials are not allowed to engage in lobbying efforts. But in 2018, David Cameron signed up to Greenso as a senior advisor and opened up his contact book, which just happened to include the phone numbers of the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. And he used that to have private contacts that were not disclosed publicly. And as Jim said, we only knew about them thanks to the digging of the FT and the Sunday Times. That's a pretty bad instance that people aren't aware of this through any kind of public disclosure. That's right. And it's worth saying that when you start to look at this, there are no actual rules that David Cameron appears to have broken. So although he was able to use all those useful contacts he built up as prime minister, only two years after having left office, that was perfectly fine. And I think that raises questions about the adequacy of the rules that we have in place. As you say, we have this advisory committee on business appointments, or shorthand is ACABA. And, and when you leave office, you're supposed to ask permission if you want to take a job in the private sector, either as a minister or a senior civil servant. But that only applies for two years after you leave. And nor was David Cameron caught by a, another sort of structure within Whitehall designed to make lobbying more transparent, which is the Office of the Registrar of Consultant Lobbyists. That only covers people who are employed as professional lobbyists. If you're employed by the company on whose behalf you're going to do the lobbying, as David Cameron was, then you don't have to register and you don't have to declare what you're doing. So there's a real question, I think, about whether the rules are adequate. And of course, Jim, the massive irony of this whole thing is that David Cameron himself predicted that lobbying would be the next big scandal to hit Westminster in 2014 when he was prime minister. He gave a speech urging the sunlight of transparency and he talked about how we all know how it happens with dinners, private calls, private messages, all the things that he himself did do while he was working for Greensill. You know, why do you think Cameron did this in full knowledge of what he said when he was prime minister? Well, I think you could equally ask why a prime minister who originally built his brand on going green spent so much time on some of Lex Greensill's four private jets. It's a hypocrisy, isn't it? People say one thing when they're seeking power or they're in power and then they forget about it. I covered some of the production of that lobbying register seven years ago. And at the time, everyone complained about the fact that it only covered third-party lobbyists. You know, people pointed this out at the time that it was a massive, massive loophole that rendered the whole thing ludicrous. 
And yet they just pushed ahead with it anyway, because I think they wanted to make a political point. They also wanted to make a political point that Labour Party was in hock to the trade unions. But also, you know, when you look at these other structures that are meant to oversee all this stuff, ACOBA, Eric Pickles admitted two weeks ago in evidence to the Committee on Public Standards that this whole body was completely toothless and that in 30 years it had never sanctioned anyone. That's Eric Pickles, who was the chairman of ACOBA, admitting it's basically useless. And then when you look at this lobbying register, people have reported on this as if this entity would have had some kind of power to investigate or sanction David Cameron if only he'd been a third-party lobbyist. It wouldn't do that anyway. It just keeps a list of people who lobby. So this idea that it could have done an inquiry was always very, very far-fetched. Now, the other element of this scandal, Hannah, is the civil service. So we know about David Cameron. As we said, he has not broken any rules. And Mr. Cameron has admitted in a long statement he published this week that he should have done all of his communications in public and could have acted better. But the civil service element is really particularly alarming. So it transpired this week through letters released between Eric Pickles, who oversees that watchdog on appointments and the cabinet office, that a senior civil servant called Bill Crowthers, who was the government's chief procurement officer, he was actually working for Greensill while he was still in the civil service. And this double hatting seems extraordinary because there was a three-month period while Mr. Crowthers was the government's chief procurement officer and he was working for Greensill. And then when he left government, he went on to become a director of the company. You know, that just does not pass the smell test at all. There's an apparent loophole here, which he seems to have passed through. Essentially, while he was still working in the cabinet office, he signed off the fact that he was going to take this role with Greensill via internal conflict of interest processes within the cabinet office, which aren't public. And it was really noticeable listening to Eric Pickles giving evidence to the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee this week, that he, as chair of ACABA, a key part of the sort of infrastructure for trying to ensure that nothing civil servants do appears improper had absolutely no sight of what those internal processes within the cabinet office would have been for signing off that role for Bill Crowthers. Then, of course, because that had been signed off internally, he felt that once he left his job, there was no need for him to go to ACABA as a civil servant would if they had left and then started a new job. He didn't seek permission, nor did he seek permission when his role changed. And that really seems to be a loophole, a problem because we don't know what the internal processes are that were followed within the cabinet office, and a problem because it then means that you don't have to seek that permission. But very much as Jim says, even had he asked Akaba, having left, there wouldn't have been anything they could have done except make public that fact. And that means that this whole system is hugely reliant on the media scrolling through all these disclosures, picking up on anything that looks unusual. And I think there's a real question as to whether, you know, if Greensill hadn't got into difficulties, whether anyone would have been paying attention to any of this. Well, Jim, I want to just quickly focus on the role of ACABA, which is the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. This is a very small organisation. It's only got four people who work on it. It's led by Eric Pickles, who's a former Conservative cabinet minister, now a peer. He did a select committee appearance talking about ACABA. And essentially, it's a watchdog that has no powers. It can advise on appointments, but there's been many people who just ignore it. I recall when George Osborne was appointed editor of the Evening Standard after he left office, he didn't ask ACABA. He just went ahead and did it. And it doesn't have any teeth to it. That's something that MPs have called for this week. The Labour Party have said MPs need to have ability to enforce, you know, sanctions on people who don't follow their rulings. 
Uh, and we've also heard from Gordon Brown that that two-year cooling off period maybe should be extended to five years. But do you think we're actually going to see any reforms to this watchdog? On the positive side of a COBA, I mean, it, it fulfills one use, I guess, which is that you can see where former ministers and the most senior officials, the very top mandarins, you can see where they've gone, at least within a year or two after leaving politics. So it's not completely useless. But as you've both mentioned, it has no kind of sanctions. If you ever look through the COBA website, the guidance is always basically, can you desist from directly lobbying people for six months or a year or whatever it is? And then after that, you can do that. And also, after two years, then you are free from the net altogether. Over the years, various governments have kind of fetishized private sector experience and deliberately brought in as many private sector people as possible. You know, that somehow the private sector always knows best. And that has created these potential conflicts because you end up with people wearing two hats and it's not quite sure at any one time which master they are serving. But Hannah, of course, the danger is, and I think some people have warned about it this week, that if the result from this scandal is that you create hermetically sealed bubbles between the public and private sector, that means Whitehall and the government and therefore the country will lose out. And so there needs to be a balance here, doesn't there, between the fact that you want to be able to bring in private sector expertise and people who have real world experience, as Whitehall loves to call it. But as Jim said, people who are not having conflict of interest that could give them a commercial advantage. That feels as if it's the place we need to get to. It is a risk. You don't want government to seal itself off, nor do you want to make politics an unattractive proposition for people who you know might have a successful career, think, oh, I'd like to spend a little time, try being an MP, go into politics and perhaps return to my career afterwards to feel that they might you know, not be able to do that in a straightforward manner. So there are risks both ways. Just to go back to what you were saying before, though, I think you know, there is this question around how you could sanction people in these contexts you know, if they did something wrong. Once people have left government, if they were a minister, they returned to being an MP. You, know, you can think of things that you could put in place. But the sanctions are tricky to think through once you start to do that. Now, Jim, where does this scandal go next? Because there's obviously been this drip drip of allegations about David Cameron, Bill Crowther's this revolving door. We've got several inquiries going on. Boris Johnson has announced a private inquiry led behind the scenes by Nigel Boardman, who's a former city lawyer. We've also found out this week that the Treasury Select Committee is open investigation into Green Sale. The Parliamentary Administration Committee, PACAC, has opened an investigation. It looks as if we are going to get some public testimony from David Cameron, from Rishi Sunak and from the other key figures involved. Yeah, I think the Boardman inquiry is going to be quite interesting if it does the job properly. There's one thing we haven't really talked about today is the way that Greensill, the company, did end up getting a couple of government contracts. Initially, there was a contract set up on supply chain finance in, I think, 2012, which initially went to Citigroup. But then Greensill uh, managed to obtain that contract in 2018. There's also subsidiary earned, which introduced this system whereby NHS workers could get paid faster. And the issue with those which the Sunday Times nailed was the fact that neither of them seemed to go out to an open tender initially. And if true, that would be very concerning. So that could be an interesting line of inquiry. I think having David Cameron and Rishi Sunak in public has the potential to open up a lot of new facts and a lot of on what went on. Because if you look at David Cameron's statement from the weekend, which emerged 40 days after I first contacted his spokesman with a lot of inquiries about this stuff, and I was repeatedly, repeatedly stonewalled, you know, a lot of the stuff he said 
it just begs further questions. So, for example, when he said, when the FT reported that his share options in Greens were worth $70 million, he said it wasn't true, but he won't say what it was worth. Well, now we get a chance to ask him. When he said that on his trip in the Saudi desert with MBS, the Saudi crown prince, when David Cameron says that he raised human rights concerns, people might press him on what proportion of their trip was focused on human rights concerns and what proportion was focused on trying to get business with Greensill. All sorts of questions like this could be very interesting. But I think where this story is going to go in a kind of macro sense is actually away from the lobbying, and it's going to end up looking very deeply at the way that Greensill provides the funding for the mega fast expansion of the Liberty Group, and whether there are questions about how that occurred. And bear in mind that the German financial regulator is looking at Greensill Bank in relation to some of this stuff. And of course, the potential collapse and the potential rescue of a lot of those steel factories, of which there are more than a dozen around the UK. So this story has a very long way to run. Obviously, politically, Liberty Steel is a very potent thing because it's got thousands of blue collar workers in many parts of England that voted Conservative for the first time at the last election, the so-called Red Wall. And I believe Liberty, in fact, actually has a plant in Hartlepool where there's a very important by-election coming up on May the 6th. And it feels as if there's no way that Boris Johnson's government is going to let Liberty Steel go under, which raises the question of some kind of nationalisation, which has already happened once before, if I'm right. I'm going to be in Hartlepool this very Sunday evening talking to local people about the by-election, hopefully trying to talk to some steel workers there. You're right, Seb. The governing Tory party is so acutely sensitive to this charge, fair or unfair, that during the 1980s they allowed the coal industry and large parts of the steel industry to go under, leaving aside the fact that industry continue to contract under new labour, we should make that point. They are acutely sensitive to that kind of Achilles heel in terms of their reputation, especially in the North and the Midlands. So they will go out of their way not to rescue Sanjeev Gupta himself, who's the tycoon behind Liberty, but they are going to try to quasi-nationalise the factories in the UK. And they'll basically do what happened with British Steel two years ago, where the official receiver takes control of the business, but the government basically underwrites any losses for as long as it takes to find a private sector buyer to pick up the pieces and take on these assets. But the problem is a lot of them are not profit-making and it's not clear who's going to buy them. And just to remind our listeners, when this happened with British Steel, it cost taxpayers £600 million before the business was bought by a Chinese buyer called Ying Ye. And finally, Hannah, I just want to bring a bit about how the Labour Party's done here, particularly Rachel Rees, the Shadow Cabinet Office Minister, has made great hay this week by digging into the scandal, holding the government to account in Parliament. Do you think there's going to be any sort of political benefit to this? Or is it just that when voters look at this, and I saw about 24% of voters are aware of the story, which is actually quite a high number given the royal news and the pandemic. But do you think actually that this is an opening for Labour or do you think people just look at all politicians and put them under the same net? I think what we saw with Keir Starmer on Wednesday at Prime Minister's Questions is the Labour Party clearly sense an opportunity here to try to revive the narrative of Tory sleaze, which we saw under the John Major government. But there is a real risk associated with that, as you say, that actually the further this story goes, the more it seems to be the entire political class who are under question. And in fact, also, you know, government more generally, as we start to see this story spread to civil servants as well. So I think there is certainly a risk involved in that as a strategy. But it does seem to be something that the Labour Party is trying to explore as a possibility to try to get an electoral advantage out of. Jim and Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you.
The death of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh at the age of 99, has been a potent moment for the UK. As well as an outpouring of gratitude for his lifetime of public service, the nation has been consumed by feelings that has reached something of a turning point. The reflections of Philip's long life in the public eye is evidence of just how much has changed during his role in the royal family. His generation is the last to have that direct connection to the Second World War. We've dug out this clip of Philip speaking in 1947 when he was still Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten. We're gathered here today to mark the opening of the Garden of Remembrance and to pay homage to those sons of caution who gave their lives that their country might survive. This garden not only enshrines their memory, but should be a positive reminder to us all whenever we pass it that many brave men are dead who might have been alive. Robert Shrimsley, listening to that clip is an extraordinary reminder of just how long Philip's life was and also how much change we saw in Britain. It can often be said, maybe a little tritely, that we won't see the like of him again. But do you think that's actually true? Well, I mean, I think we would all certainly hope not to see a generation that had to live through world war. So to that extent, it certainly is true. And I think we saw not only in the Duke of Edinburgh, in, in a whole cadre of generation of politicians whose entire life experiences were formed by the Second World War. And um, as long as we remain a peacetime nation, that experience will be lost. But we also have to recognise the extraordinary change in society in all our lives. You know, my children can't imagine a world where there was no internet. They look at a typewriter and have absolutely no idea how it might function. So the world has changed at a, at a colossal pace and the speed of change continues. Max Hastings, welcome to the podcast. It's a real delight to have you on. Listening back to that clip and looking back at Philip's life, what do you think are the main themes of change in British life? I know that's rather a big question. Britain is a much smaller place than it was up in 1947. I've always thought it's a very interesting question. Why Prince Philip, a highly intelligent man, took on the job? And I think the answer, or part of the answer, is that in 1947, being consort to Queen Elizabeth II, as she would become, at a time when Britain still had an empire, looked a pretty glittering prospect, especially if you came from the sort of background that Prince Philip did. Today, I ask myself, if somebody like Prince Philip was asked to make the same judgment today, I question whether he would have so readily taken it on, because Britain has shrunk. And one of the things that worries me quite a lot, and I'm sure many of us who are the Queen's subject. The Queen is going to be very lonely with the departure of her husband after all these years. There's nobody now in whom she can confide in the same way. My dear friend, the historian Sir Michael Howard, who died a couple of years ago, always predicted the Queen's passing is going to be a surprisingly traumatic moment, even for people in Britain who don't think they're monarchists. It's not I don't think too impertinent, suggests that the Queen becomes personally much more vulnerable with the passing of her husband. And I, for one, cross my fingers tightly every night that she may go on for quite a few years, because it is going to be a very traumatic moment when she goes. The fact is, for most people, they cannot remember a country without the Queen or without Prince Philip. And I think what we've seen over the past week, that obviously there's been hours and hours of TV coverage and essays and newspapers, is that I think the country is sort of beginning to prepare itself for that moment that Max talked about there. And that when the Queen does pass, that is going to raise lots of big questions. And obviously, Britain is 
a smaller place and is a very different country as well. But also attitudes to the monarchy have changed hugely. It's going to be a, a much, much more traumatic moment for the nation than people assume. And I think only the most hardened and fervent Republicans are going to be immune from this. It's, it's impossible for anybody under 80 to really imagine or think about life in this country without the Queen on the throne. And so it's also the case that her successor will, will ascend in a very different era, a period of far less deference, a far more critical time. It's also worth remembering that Prince Charles will be a very old man when he reaches the throne. So I think it is going to be a major lurch. He'll have a fair win because of the degree of affection and respect that's felt for the Queen. I was actually surprised, Max, by the level of deference that has been seen towards Prince Philip, he has been remembered as Queen's consort who had a history of saying slightly questionable things that get rigged up by the newspapers every so often. But over the past week, there's been a lot of stuff about the good things he's done, his efforts within the environmental movement, the Duke of Edinburgh Award. And it does show you that there is still definitely a lot of respect there, even if there were 100,000 complaints made to the BBC about too much coverage. You know, where do you think we are in terms of still being deferential towards the monarchy? Well, I don't take the 100,000 complaints too seriously because you can whip up 100,000 anythings by social media these days. <laughs> what I do think is true, Matthew Paris had a very good line a few months ago in something he wrote when he said he thought there were far more Elizabethists in Britain than there are monarchists. And I think we may discover in the next year or two that that is very true, that we're all completely committed to the Queen. But there's so much appears to be in the melting pot, not only in the wake of Brexit, but also with serious doubts about the future of the Union. And all sorts of institutions are rocking on their pedestals. I don't want to get too party political here, but I don't think many people would think that British national leadership is in a very convincing, very impressive state at the moment. And it always strikes me that when George VI died, that although Winston Churchill, who was then Prime Minister, although he was very old, Winston Churchill was able to pull the country together at that difficult time, and the country could rally around this, this rock-like figure in the middle. I don't see any rock-like figures out there to rally around in the same way. So when the Queen goes, we're going to need some very steadying forces. We're going to need steadying voices in the media, in politics, and of course, above all, in government. And I do hope that they're forthcoming, but I don't see those rocks to whom we can anchor ourselves when we lose the rock that's been with us longest of all in the Queen. And where do you think those voices could come from, Robert? Because Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, the current political leaders, both adopted, I think, a right and serious tone. And we had the tribute in Parliament on Monday where MPs brought up every single little story they could remember of seeing Prince Philip and some kind of interaction with them. But the attitude across Westminster was pretty solemn, was very, you know, deferential. And I think the same was true in the media coverage as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly less concerned than I think than Max about the need for a rock when this happens. If one takes the comparison he made with George VI, first of all, the king's death was a shock when it happened. Second of all, his successor was very young. And third of all, he, he had an immense personal affection for having been the king through the war. And I think none of these three things will apply next time. You know, we're all steeled to expect that we're going to have a change of monarch in the next decade. I don't think that the country, although it still has a deep affection for the monarch and certainly for the queen, 
will be quite as juddered in the sense of the handover, because that is how monarchy works. So I'm not sure that, although I agree with Max's broader analysis about the shape of Britain, I'm not sure that we're going to need a special anchor when we have a new monarch. Max, as the monarchy is going to evolve into this next phase, which has really been prompted by Prince Philip's death, how will its role with politics change? Because we all know that Prince Philip was an example of someone who had very strong opinions, which made their way into their public domain from time to time. The Queen has obviously been widely praised for remaining apolitical and keeping all opinions to herself. Her successor, Prince Charles, is more in the Prince Philip vein, I would say, that he has opinions, that we know what they are. They have been put out there. And particularly if you've got, say, a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson in charge, when that happens, which could happen, you could see the potential points for friction there. Well, I've always felt passionately that the Prince of Wales was very ill-advised even though some of the causes that he espouses are the admirable causes, I do think that there's a, it's a very high-risk strategy. I thought it was shocking when he wrote lobbying the government some years ago now to invest money on alternative medicine against the views of most of the medical profession. I think he'd be very ill-advised if he went on with that. I think the best hope for the monarchy, the Queen has been brilliant at being all things to all men and women, but we can guess what she thinks about lots of things. We only know what she thinks about dogs and horses. And I think that's the only way you keep the monarchy so on the road. Leadership generally in the Western world is not in very good shape. Uh, we seem to have a, um, some pretty nasty autocrats in control of some of the largest countries in the world. And we've also got some pretty weak democratic leaders. Now, where that leads, maybe it is true that in the world in which we now live, that somebody said the other day that, let's say, the great tech barons wield far more power than any government. Maybe governments are going to become diminishingly important. Maybe we can get away with having second or even third-rate national leaders. Well, we better hope so, because I'm not sure that one sees any great national leaders in waiting. Well, Robert, finally, do you want to come in on that point as well? And also, do you think that relationship between government and the monarchy is going to fundamentally change even in substance or in tone after the Queen has moved on? I'm perhaps not as fatalistic as Max. I think governments are going to remain important. And to some extent, I believe that in democratic nations, you get reactions against whoever your current leader is. As to the extent to which the balance between the monarchy and the government will change, I think to large part that is going to depend on the monarch. The British government, certainly not this British government, and I can't see any of the other ones being likely to be different, are not going to look for major reform of the monarchy. It's just not worth the political damage that you can take on board trying to do it. But obviously, if the character of the monarch changes, what he tries to do, that can have a knock-on impact. We know that we might have under King Charles a smaller monarchy, we know that people are looking at some of the prerogative powers under which the government acts in the monarch's name. They could be changed. But I, I would not be looking and I would not expect substantial changes anytime soon. Well, Robert and Max, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker. You can subscribe to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.